Welcome to Shamanic Plant Messengers and the Fate of the Earth, a conversation hosted by moderator J.P. Harpigny at a Bioneers conference with Wade Davis and Kathleen Harrison. We hope you enjoy it. We join the conversation as it begins. You know, when one uses the word explorer, it can have a sort of a cheesy 19th century connotation of some arrogant Brit with a pith helmet lording it over the natives. But I think that one could use the term explorer in describing Wade Davis in the best sense of that term. He's above all an ethnobotanist. Um, He's one of the students of the great late Richard Evans Schultes, and it's actually interesting that there are two illustrious students of Richard Evans Schultes who are at this conference. Andrew Weil is another one who was a botany major at Harvard before he became a medical uh, practitioner. So the great Richard Evans Schultes is really the towering figure of ethnobotany in in the 20th century, and Wade is really one of the few people who's carried on his legacy with the greatest uh, vigor and and to the greatest effect. Wade has really been all around the world um, in his ethnobotanic collecting. He's collected an enormous amount of, of plants and ranging from the Andes to the Amazon to Africa. And he continues to travel a great deal, not only as an ethnobotanist, but also he's really been one of the main people on the planet who's defended wildlands and indigenous cultures and the relationship between the two, and has been one of the most eloquent voices to try to protect as many of our vital ecosystems as possible, any of the indigenous cultures that are threatened. He's done this um, through speaking, but also through an amazing collection of books about the Penan rainforest, the clouded leper, shadows in the sun, and recently, the light at the edge of the world. He's been on Canadian and PBS specials, and um, he's worked with a whole number of different environmental groups, including actually as an official explorer of the National Geographic Society. Um, So he's really had a a very illustrious career. But what's interesting about him, uh, one thing, is that not only has he traveled the world in, in defense of ecosystems, he is also someone with a real sense of place, something we, a cliche we sometimes use in the environmental movement, that he's from British Columbia, he was a park ranger, he hangs out a lot up on this Batsizi Plateau there, uh, you know, and he's the kind of person who feels as comfortable, I I could imagine him, you know, tracking a grizzly bear up in the Yukon and hanging out with a shaman on the Orinoco exchanging a little bit of snuff or giving a lecture at the Smithsonian or at Harvard. So a very well-rounded chap, I have got to say. Anyway, uh, I'll leave it at that for, for Wade. Now, Kat Harrison uh, has been maybe the most loyal pioneer. Uh, perhaps she, she may have more appearances. I feel like I'm doing a baseball game here, but more appearances to her, to her credit here at this conference. What Kathleen Harrison has really brought consistently to this conference and to this topic is a very unique feminine sensibility, but also an artistic sensibility and some type of deep intuitive relationship to the plant world and to culture. She's done a lot of work recently. Um, I don't know what she'll be talking about, but with the Mazatec in Mexico. She's someone who not only has, um, who's an artist and uh, with her organization Botanical Dimensions has done a lot to not only for preservation of plant species but also the lore associated with plants, but has also has a sort of soft but quiet ferocity that is a very deep, I can't describe it more than that. I think uh, 
I let her presence speak for itself. But anyway, we're really pleased that we could have these two very different but very complementary great voices and thinkers on this fascinating issue of shamanic plant teachers. So I'm going to now turn it over to them, and then we'll field questions a little bit later on. So thank you very much, Wade Davis, Kathleen Harris. Well, I'm going to start and then pass it over to Kat, but let me first say that I'm absolutely delighted to be here with Kat, who's an old friend, and we're from an old circle of friends. I do have a position at the National Geographic as explorer in residence, which sounds like an oxymoronic sinecure. And if you want some evidence that social change does happen, imagine the fact that someone who studied ayahuasca, shamanism, and zombies has an official position at the National Geographic Society. And it's all part of an amazing transformation of that society where after 100 years, they realized that the magazine, successful as it had been, had been the tail wagging the dog, and the dog was the mission. And so what was the mission? And the new CEO came in with great imagination, and he declared that having told you for the first century of its existence about the world, we were now going to get together for the next century and help you save the world. And so the National Geographic, amazing as it may sound, has absolutely embraced conservation in every dimension. And my particular bailiwick is, is the ethnosphere, which we're defining as a sum total of all thoughts, dreams, beliefs, intuitions brought into being by the human imagination since the dawn of consciousness. And of course, the ethnosphere is ourselves, humanity's great legacy. And as I'll discuss tomorrow, the ethnosphere is severely imperiled. I've drawn myself back to the ethnosphere and really back to my academic roots because I began as an anthropologist. And for me, as an anthropologist, you know, working in the field, I always sought the right conduit, the culture, the right means or vehicle to break down the inherent barrier that existed by definition between myself and the people with whom I found myself living as a guest. So in, in good measure, unlike Kat, who I think was born with plants in her soul, I really turned to botany as a way to understand the peoples of the Amazon, you know, living amongst the Barasana, people who cognitively don't distinguish the color blue from the color green because the canopy of the heavens is equated to the canopy of the forest. The obvious conduit to culture was the botanical realm, but by contrast, and particularly uh, the sacred plants. But of course, if I was working in the Arctic, as I have, or, or in Tibet, or in Haiti, or other places in the world, you find other means to seek the heart of a culture. So when I saw this um, title, Shamanic Plant Messengers and the Fate of the Earth, one of Kenny Osobal's inimitable topics, there are really two things going on here. The sacred plants, the role they have in culture, their place as metaphor in the human heart, and then, of course, what role they may play in an understanding of the relationship between human beings and the environments in which we live. It's very important to realize that the use of these sacred plants is firmly rooted in culture. One of the most interesting aspects of these plants, perhaps 120 of which have been found in nature, is their distribution. And full-on 90% of them, of course, are found in either northeastern Siberia or largely in the Western Hemisphere. The old world is notably lacking in psychotropic plants, uh, which is curious because, of course, the forests of equatorial West Africa or of Southeast Asia are equally botanically rich, equally rich in pharmacologically active compounds, and the peoples of those regions have explored those forests with equal dexterity and perspicacity, 
as the people have in the Amazon, for example. And certainly in equatorial West Africa, that seeking has yielded any number of interesting biodynamic compounds. And indeed, in equatorial West Africa, the manipulation of folk poisons is probably the most ubiquitous trait of material culture. By contrast, with the exception of iboga, they really don't use that many psychotropic substances. And, and of course, in the Amazon, where there is a plethora of curious sacred plants of this sort, poisons are used as, as part of the hunting technology, of course, a famous 90 species or more that yield curare, but critically, Indian peoples of the Americas in general, from the Arctic uh, homeland of the Inuit to Tierra del Fuego, did not use poisons on each other. And the answer, of course, is that the use of these plants is firmly rooted in culture. When I later worked in Haiti, I remember the voodoo priest would always say to me, you know, you white people go to church and speak about God. We hear that these Indians eat their magic plants and speak to God. We dance in the temple and become God. And this is a critical issue because it reveals the extent to which what these plants are are a means of satisfying a more common and ubiquitous desire in the human spirit, which is a desire to periodically change consciousness, which of course can be found in every culture. And what the Haitian priests were referring to was the fact that through the spirit of the dance, through the idea of transformation and metamorphosis inherent in spirit possession, people of that part of the world had a different avenue to seek a direct dialogue with the Godhead. And often what I find interesting about psychoactive plants in a place like the Amazon is not simply their stunning pharmacological consequences, something that we've all experienced in many ways, but really what they tell us about the genius of the shaman and the classic example of that and the example that Terence Dennis McKenna first introduced me to really back in 1981 when I traveled with him in the Amazon is this curious synergistic effect. Now just think about it for a moment. I mean, here you have a floor of 80,000 species, and the shaman have put together two completely morphologically distinct entities. On the one hand, a nondescript liana, which has in it beta-carbolines, harmine and harmaline, mildly psychotropic. And on the other hand, there's a shrub, Psychotria viridis, full of tryptamines, dimethyltryptamine, and tryptamines that are orally inactive because they're denatured by an enzyme found in the human gut, monoamine oxidase. They're only potentiated if taken in conjunction with some MAO inhibitor that denatures or inhibits the MAO in the human gut. Well, it turns out, of course, that the beta-carbolines found in Banisteriopsis capi are exactly the kind of MAO inhibitors necessary to potentiate the tryptamines. Now, you have to ask yourself a question. How in a floor of 80,000 species did these shaman find these two morphologically distinct entities in different families of plants with bearing no phylogenetic relationships to each other that when combined in a quite sophisticated preparation would have this powerful synergistic effect, a biochemical version of the whole being greater than the sum of the parts. Now, if you ask a scientist, they will tell you it was trial and error. And like so many scientific explanations for phenomenon that we don't understand, uh, this is exposed as a kind of a rude euphemism for the fact that we have no idea how the Indians found these plants. Because, of course, trial and error, you can just run the statistical models to realize that this is not what happened. Now, you ask the Indians themselves, and they have very ordinary, and from their point of view, quite mundane explanations. They'll tell you that, you know, the, the key is the plants tell you. 
And of course, we dismiss this because we're uncomfortable with metaphor, but if you pursue it with them, you'll find that peoples like the Siona Sequoia of the um, Putumayo area of Ecuador and adjacent Colombia will have 17 varieties of ayahuasca, which they constantly and consistently distinguish in the forest, all of which are morphologically, to our eye, taxonomically, the same species. And you ask them how they distinguish those, they'll say, well, I thought you knew something about plants. And you say, well, you? well, the answer is, of course, that you take each plant on the night of the full moon and each species sings to you in a different key. Now, that's not something that's going to get you a PhD at Harvard, but it's a lot more interesting than counting stamens. But it does, it does give you an idea that in journeying into these distant realms, we journey not simply to find new wealth itself, as this sort of the cliche of ethnobotany would suggest, but I would argue instead that the real contribution is we return with new visions of life itself. And the visions of life itself that we come back with are the idea which really serves to fuel the central revelation of anthropology and something that I've pursued all my life, and that is the idea that the world in which we live in does not exist in some absolute sense, but is just one model of reality the consequence of one particular set of adaptive choices that our lineage made, albeit successfully, many generations ago. But if there's one revelation of anthropology, it's that there are other ways of thinking, other ways of being, other ways of orienting yourself on the earth. And when you think about that and you accept the biological fact that we all, as a species, have the same mental acuity, then the real interesting issue becomes what happens when a people don't put that mental ingenuity into creating cities dense in intrigue or technological elements of wizardry, but rather put it into exploring the metaphysical realm or the realm of plants. And certainly the work that I did in Haiti showed to me powerfully the idea that different cultural realities created absolutely different human beings whose capacities were profoundly different. And I say that because when I move now into the second part of this question, the relationship between native peoples or indigenous people in the earth, it's very important to realize that, of course, landscape can create character. Lawrence Durrell, a writer, once said, you could depopulate France, resettle it with Tartars, and find to your astonishment that within a generation or so, the same national traits would reemerge, the affection for fine food and beautiful men and women, the reflexive disdain for Americans. All of this would just sort of <laughs> pop out of the ground of the sacred soil of France. And you can see this, of course, in places like East Africa, where I was recently on assignment for the geographic looking at some of the nomadic pastoral people, the Rindili, the Arial, the Samburu, who live in the Kaisu Desert of regions in the sub-Saharan Sahel, in which drought is not some kind of cruel anomaly, but it's a regular feature of climate. And surviving drought is a key imperative that makes the people who they are. So the huge incentive to have lots of herds, great numbers of animals, and because of that, there's an incentive to have great kindred. There's an incentive, therefore, for polygyny. These societies are polygynous, and therefore, if you have one elder who marries four and five younger women, what do you do with the young men who are unable to get women of marriageable age? Well, you basically get rid of them. How do you get rid of them? You send them off as warriors to the periphery of your land to protect your herds. How do you make that separation desirable? You envelop it with prestige. And so the greatest moment of a young man's life is when he has a nine slits to his foreskin the ritual moment of circumcision that makes him a man. If he flinches, he will be beaten to death, or at least he will shame his clan forever. But few fail because the honor is so great. Then what about his libido? How do you deal with that? Well, you deal with that by making premarital intercourse totally acceptable, premarital pregnancy taboo, 
a young warrior is actually encouraged to come back to the domestic space, have a relationship with a young girl, even make her a steady girlfriend, make love to her openly in front of her parents. But the minute she's betrothed to an elder, that has to stop. But he's still encouraged to openly mock the virility of the old guy who's taken away the girlfriend. But you suddenly see how the landscape can create culture. But also, culture informs landscape. And this is the key to understanding the second part of this question, the relationship to the earth itself. We have a kind of a Thoreauian or Rousseauian idea of the relationship between native people and the earth that implies a kind of the same kind of self-conscious contemplation and separateness from the earth that Thoreau celebrated. Indeed, Thoreau could only speak about the wild the way he did because he never saw anything remotely wild in his life. That idea is almost racist in its simplicity. Indigenous people throughout the world are not weakened by nostalgia, nor are they sentimental, but they have forged through time and ritual, a traditional mystique of the earth that's based not on an idea of being self-consciously close to it, but on a far subtler intuition, which is the idea that the earth itself is breathed into being by human consciousness. And you can see this in any number of, of ritual practices. And of course, the, what's important is not whether these metaphors are true in some factual sense, but what they tell you about a people. For example, I lived for a long time with the Kohi, who many of you may know, in the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta, for whom the central metaphor is a loom, and upon this loom I weave my life. And the society's uh, ideal is to abstain from sex, eating, and sleeping, and do nothing but chew the sacred leaves, coca, and chant to the ancestors. And to this day, in a bloodstained continent, they're ruled by a ritual priesthood. Training for the priesthood involves the acolytes being taken away from their families at the age of three and four, sequestered in a world of shadowy darkness for 18 years to nine-year periods deliberately chosen to mimic the nine months of gestation in their natural mother's womb. Now they're metaphorically in the womb of the great mother. And during that entire time, they're enculturated in the values of their society, values that maintain the proposition that their prayers maintain the cosmic balance. And after 18 years of this, they're taken out before dawn, and everything they've learned in the abstract is affirmed in stunning glory as they see their first sunrise at the age of 19. Now, this is a rather astonishing example of ritual played out through time, through culture, through landscape. But it, it happens all the time. I recently, in February, made a film for the National Geographic of an amazing ritual that happens outside of Cusco, Peru, in the highland village of Chinchero, the summer, site of the summer pa palace of Topa Inca Yupanqui, the second of the great Incan rulers. And what happens is that once each year, the community runs the perimeters of their lands. And each of the three major ailus has a number of hamlets. And each hamlet seeks the fastest young boy who dresses head to toe as a woman, becomes a wailaka, a pejorative term for the feminine essence. And the wailaka, carrying the banners of the community, leads all able-bodied men on a race of the perimeter, but it's an arduous feat. You begin at 11,500 feet, you drop down two to 3,000 feet to the base of the sacred mountain, at least the people I ran it with. You then climb 3,000 feet to a series of sacred points, uh, itos, where prayers are made and coca is given to the earth, and then you drop 3,000 feet, climb another 4,000 feet, and 25 kilometers like this all the way back around. And of course, what's marvelous is by the end of the day, you emerge in the trance, almost finishing the race less as a human being than as a spirit being who, through the power of the collective, has been, have been able to get through this incredible ordeal. I personally got through it by chewing more coca leaves than have ever been chewed by a human being in the history of the plant. 
But that notion of moving through sacred landscape plays out in the use of these sacred plants as well, and most notably in the famous cult of the cactus of the four winds, which involves the ingestion of San Pedro cactus, Trichocereus pachinoa. And I spent some time in the valley of Huancabamba working with the maestros and the curanderos, and what again intrigued me about this was that the acolytes and the patients would come together from all over South America to these Baroque rituals, nocturnal rituals, where you would ingest through the nostril about a liter of alcohol infused with either datura or they sometimes use datura leaves, and then you drink a decoction at midnight of the San Pedro cactus, and during the ensuing intoxication, diagnosis was made, but the interesting part happens the next day when, in order to heal the body, you then have to move through sacred geography on pilgrimage to a series of isolated lakes called Las Waringas, found higher up in the mountains around the periphery of which grow the medicinal plants that are alone believed to be efficacious. But again, you see the metaphor, movement through geography, realignment with the spirit level, but making some kind of sacrifice so you can be open to the pharmacological potential of the medicinal plant. And this then finally gives you a strong sense of the way that the relationship, I think, between healing, landscape, and in some sense consciousness comes about in these societies. And it's important to remember that maybe the Kohi don't spend a full 18 years, and maybe they don't abstain from sex, obviously. What's interesting about a people is not simply what they do, but the power of the metaphors and the poetic grace by which those metaphors carry them forward. In other words, a kid raised in the Andes to believe that a mountain is the domain of an Apu spirit that will direct his or her destiny will be a profoundly different human being than an American kid raised to believe that a mountain's a pile of inner rock ready to be mined. Or I was raised in the forests of British Columbia believing that a forest exists to be cut. Well, that made me very different from a Kwagiulth youth who was raised to believe that forest was the abode of Hukuk and the crooked beak of heaven and the cannibal spirits that dwell at the north end of the world. So this gives you a sense of the relationship between landscape and character and culture and the use of these sacred plants. And finally, I think that if there was one thing that does distinguish our lineage, it is, of course, the fact that we succumb to the cult of the seed and that 10,000 years ago, the poetry of the shaman, as Joseph Campbell said, was displaced by the prose of the organized priesthood, and we all began to settle down, create surplus, create hierarchy, create institutions of a settled society. And what's always intrigued me in my travels is to seek the time before then by living with nomads, either Inuit in the High Arctic, pastoral nomads in Kenya or Tibet, nomads of the rainforest like the Penan and Borneo, because all of these people you know, are profoundly different because they have not succumbed to the cult of the seed. And in fact, when you study and live with people like the Kalahari Bushmen, as I have, or the Aborigines more profoundly in Australia, you also see that these are peoples who never embraced a cult of progress, never even embraced the notion of change. And if you know anything about Australian Aboriginal dream time, change is really not a possibility because the whole nature of dream time is that the world exists in two parallel universes, one of which is constantly being brought into being by consciousness as the individuals walk the song lines, mimicking through gesture and through song the songs of creation that the ancestors breathed into being at the beginning of time. So the idea, when you, when you believe so firmly that you are actually making the phenomenological world as you're walking and as you're breathing and as you're living, how can you have a cult of progress? Because there's nothing to improve upon yet, because you're still making it. 
and I think that's a really amazing um, distinction. And then finally, I think the, the last thing I want to say, and I'm sorry I've gone on so long, is that can these plants be of use and of interest to us? You know, those of us who were by circumstances of birth brought into a particular worldview, a worldview that sees itself as a paragon of human potential, but if you think for a moment and you realize that half our marriages end in divorce, only 6% of us have elders living with us. The average American kid is 18 years old and spent two years watching television. You know, we embrace obscene slogans like 24-7, implying as they do total obligation to work at the expense of family, not to mention our propensity to rip down the ancient forest, tear holes in the heavens, and change the biochemistry of the, of the universe. You realize we're not the paragon of, of potential. So those of us who embrace these plants, in good measure, we're seeking another path. And I must say that I'm one person who is very happy to say that I inhaled. Not only, uh, not only did I inhale, I, I think it's very interesting when we look historically back at the sea change of the society throughout the Western world in the last 40 years. I'm talking about new attitudes towards homosexuality, towards the role of women, the rights of women, attitudes towards the environment. The one ingredient consistently expunged from the record is the fact that millions of us laid prostrate before the gates of awe beneath the power of one of these plants. And I think that 150 years from now, that will be recognized as one of the catalytic events that shifted history and shifted it hopefully in more benign directions. Thank you, Wade. And thank you all for being here. Nice to see you again. It's true, I did uh, start out in nature. I grew up in California in a wild place and uh, had the blessing of uh, the tide pools and the plants in the hills and a naturalist sort of father and uh, the 1950s, which seemed like a dream in some ways if you were out of the fray dreams of the people that lived on this land before me teaching us and I combined with it over the years art and travel and study of anthropology and biology and a lot of this sort of exploration. I work as an independent you know renegade ethnobotanist doing field work and teaching and writing I particularly like to look at the way that people see nature by looking at the way that they relate to plants, that they invoke plants in their life, the way they do ceremony, the songs they sing, and the myths they tell about where these beings came from, very much at the way people, humans, all over, at least those of us who haven't lost the knack and become too grounded in the material, the way that people tend to personify the species that they want to relate to. To understand something, you really have to have a relationship with, with it. And I found several things that um, Lynn Margulis was saying in the prior presentation, very interesting, similar, uh, like that you have to put a face on something to meet it, to get it. And she was speaking of the, the planet. But this is certainly something that happens, uh, and I think has happened as far back as human culture 
has existed, the recognition that there is a spirit in each species of plant and animal and fungus that we can relate to as though it were a person. And it's a very useful way to kind of organize the qualities of an organism in one's own mind, in one's own experience, to remember it, to get to know it, to make an alliance with it, or to decide that this person is not your cup of tea, so to speak. So I particularly like to watch how people do that. And I have been very fortunate to spend quite a bit of time in the Peruvian Amazon over beginning in the 1970s and taking ayahuasca with those people and also working with other plant medicines there and with the way that they walk through the forest and the way they describe reality to each other, the kinds of beautiful terms, designs, songs, sounds, uh, movements that they use to do that. And then also in Ecuador in more recent years and in Mexico throughout my entire life. And, and the last eight years I've worked with the Mazatec people in the renowned plant wizards, uh, mushroom wizards as well, in the uh, mountains of northern Oaxaca. I've learned a great deal from them. When I looked at the title of this talk, and every year someone else gives it a title and then I find myself on this panel in one role or another and try to orient myself to it's sort of like the role of the dice, you know, which words were laid on this panel that's always about these sacred plants and mushrooms, but uh, it gets a little different slant each time. And I, so I kind of take the title as a, an arrow, you know, a way to look, even if I don't particularly agree with the projection involved in it. And I have to say, maybe it's that can't remember whatever it was that JP said about me, some kind of a demure feistiness or something like that. Uh, <laughs> I think I like that. <laughs> but uh, at first I thought, hmm, shamanic plant messengers. You know, not sure about the messenger part of it there. Then do we have to say that, that they're carrying a certain message which a human gets to decode and then are we telling each other what that message is and I'm always wary of the the decoding part of it you know but then I really thought well a messenger doesn't actually initiate the message they just carry the message and that is really how I think about these kinds of plants and mushrooms I'm going to include them I, I mean we do sometimes just gloss the mushrooms and call them plants but you know there are certain people who would just flip out if you do that. So, And they're right, you know, as, as Paul Stamets likes to say, the fungi are much closer genetically to human beings than they or we are to plants. So keep them as their, as their category there. That I really think of all of these beings, these ones that are the great teachers, what they call in the Amazon those that have a, a great mother. Every species has, has a mother in it, but some of the big teachers have a, a great mother and that mother is the voice that's, that's what speaks to you. I don't go along with the uh, kind of popularized notion that I think we got from um, the psilocybin mushroom having tiptoed its way so deeply into our culture, which I'm very grateful for, but that it has a message in itself. I think really we have to say that these plants and fungi are really life whispering to itself, life 
spirit working through metabolic processes of various species, finding the pathways into other species. And I always feel, and, and I will generalize here, I always feel from my many experiences with these things that there is the strong thread of the experience is the message, wake up, wake up. Just a little more, every time, everybody, wake up a little more. Open your eyes, pay attention, look around, see how beautiful it is, see how fragile it is, see how you're woven into it. You know, we all know that. If, if I'm right in assuming that if you're listening to this talk, you know this kind of experience, there probably aren't too many novices here, then you know that we always do awaken a bit in that time. We always notice what needs mending. It's like the old mending basket, which I've become fond of once again, where you don't just throw it aside when it's torn or broken. You really spend your time noticing what needs to be made whole, and you notice it often in that state, and then working on it, which you can also do in that state, and you can do afterwards with words and relationships, with the way you change your work, with the way you take care of your body and your home, and your sense of activism in the world, and the, the way in which that's a kind of mending. And I want to make that relevant to this moment that we're in right now, which feels so rent, um, so much in need of, of mending. And the second part of the title being the, the fate of the earth, I too, of course, thought of that. And I thought, my gosh, what a charge, you know. How much are shamanic plant messengers related to the fate of the earth? And how much have they always been over the last... 30 years of our culture having incorporated, you know, wildly, ineptly, eagerly, foolishly, all of these ways that we have incorporated these magical beings, found ways to grow them, found ways to synthesize them in some cases, found ways to go to where there are traditions of using them. In those years, we have, as Wade pointed out, been mending some aspects of the way we live life in this uh, strange world where spirit has just been under the table for a long time. I actually was very uh, lucky to be on a writer's retreat. I drew a graph, which I don't usually do, or it was sort of a diagram, rather, about worldview, because I was thinking that one of the big problems is that we don't, well, you know what worldview is. It's a cultural concept. It's the way that a culture sees the whole big picture. And what they see and what they miss is part of the worldview. And what we see, this sort of how we frame what's out there and what comes to us and what's around us determines, of course, what we allow ourselves to perceive we filter out a lot, we block out a lot. With what we perceive, we decide we know this. This is how the world is. Therefore, this is how we will act. So all sorts of results spin out of that basic lens that we start with, which is the worldview. And every culture has one. And they are changeable, though. They are mutable over time. And I was really thinking about how to shift that fundamental lens in our culture We've been doing it slowly, our generation. I like to take credit for that. But, you know, the crisis just felt so great. And then this, uh, and then the other shoe dropped, you know. 
And I, and I think what's happening, along with all the horror and the tragedy and the loss of sleep and the fear and lear learning what it means to live in fear and all of those things that we have been blessedly protected from, except at great price to everyone else, is that our worldview is shifting. And so, to bring it around, where does medicine, which is what I call all of these plants and fungi together, where does medicine fit into that? The Mazatec people tell me that uh, everyone needs medicine. You don't necessarily know you need medicine. You may not know where to find medicine, but everybody needs it. We need to be able to be humbled by it. And generally, in my experiences, and also with the Native American church just a little bit and their use of peyote in this country, I see that there's a cycle of ritualized behavior, and I really am a fan of ritualized behavior when it comes to these medicines. Although I came through the beautiful, chaotic, cultural birth of the use of these things, and, and I still reminisce fondly about those huge Grateful Dead concerts with 10 or 20,000 people on LSD together. It's a wonderful thing. Very, very mellow. But nevertheless, I really have learned from indigenous people who know their medicines and who know nature and who know respect and reciprocity. They know how to remember their ancestors. They form a ritual context in which to do these medicines. In those times, we see that the principles of that kind of ritual I want to share with you, that you invoke the spirit of the medicine, that you've asked to be a messenger, that it's bringing that message from the old, old roots or those tiny microbiota or all of those many, many things that are all speaking and have been for the billions of years that we just heard about if you were here in the last presentation. And, you know, even the plants are right in the last little couple of hours of that calendar, just, I mean, we're the last seconds, but they're just the last few hours. It's a long, long calendar of life. So we're all carrying all those voices from before. We're invoking the spirit of that medicine we've taken, but we're invoking every other presence, every other enduring essence, living essence, when we go into ceremony like that. And we're honoring, we're saying, this is a beautiful planet. You are a beautiful planet. You are beautiful people. You are beautiful medicine. We're honoring the greatness of everything around us in that time. And then that brings us into deep into a conversation with these messengers. And then we may ask for what we need. We may say, please, please bring the rains this year so that we can grow our food if we're subsistence farmers in Mexico. Or we may say, please make my little child well or please bring peace in the war that is raging. And we finish with gratitude, with incredible, deep, clear heart gratitude for the privilege of being alive and for the privilege of loving and living wherever we are. And these are the things that come into ceremony with medicine wherever I see it. So because I, I like to look at the evolution of how they're moving into our culture and through us into the future, into our children, into our unwritten rules, through whatever wars on drugs and DEA and this and that, and who knows what's coming now with the control of every possible filter. Who knows what's coming? But 
we have a relationship with these very generous beings. All the plants, I, I work with herbalists a lot, so not just the psychoactives, but all the plants are really eager to let us know what they know. They encourage us to let them help us. I, I don't know how that works, but I do know that it's a very strong feeling. So when we use them for healing, when we use them for spiritual delight, when we use them for seeing into the future, seeing what our work should be, what is the right path we can take for the next little part of the work, these are all ways that the plants talk to us. I want to read you one thing in the little paragraph about this talk, uh, the mention of, of major plants in, in the Americas was made, uh, peyote, psilocybin-containing mushrooms, and ayahuasca, the plant complex of South America. And of course, there are some others, other cacti, and I have to say tobacco, the most sacred plant of the Americas, because it's in relationship to all of these plants in ceremony. And there's lots to be said about tobacco, and boy, is it ever the kind of bellwether of if we're paying attention, isn't it? But um, that's a big topic. So there's one other plant, which is very subtle, but the Mazatecs are known for it. It's very subtle until you get it, and then it's not subtle anymore, called Salvia divinorum. And it's gotten a lot of notice in the last few years, and it, it's gotten enough that it may be scheduled by the DEA. They recently said they're thinking about putting it on the top of the list. It's not on any list yet. But it is a plant with which I've had quite a bit of experience, grown it for over 20 years and done it ceremonially with Mazatec people and on my own as well. And I just have an example of something I wrote some years ago when it was speaking to me to carry on the, the messenger idea. And I should say the premise of this is that one thing the plants have taught me is to be like a plant, to pay attention like a plant does, to not run around, to put your leaves out and soak up light and turn it into energy to have all of your cells open to every passing influence. So uh, this is what I, what I heard. A breeze is an event. I can feel myself change a little every day. There is this pulse in my veins that murmurs, be more, reach, make more, yet keep the form. My leaves drink the dew, diamonds flowing in my body. A butterfly stopped by, put her tiny feet on my leaf. She looked at me carefully. We whispered together. A hummingbird came and entered my blossoms with his tongue. I offered him my nectar and trembled with the beating of his wings. The plants, the plant beings beside me are so different than I am, but I like to listen to their rustling voices, notice their impressive exfoliation which shades of green they choose to wear, the flowers they design, and their swelling seed heads. We are all visited by the insect beings, but each of us has our favorites. Many of the insects do favors for us, and we feed them in return. Once in a while, a human being comes to me and asks for some of my leaves. The human may give my roots a bean of coffee or cacao, which I appreciate, absorb. The being will cleanse itself with powerful smoke, then gently remove some of my leaves. I offer myself, it is one reason that I'm here, to speak to the beings when they ask. 
My awareness is in all my leaves and goes with the ones they take away. In the quiet darkness of their little garden homes, they ask me questions. They ask me for help in difficult moments. They invite me to show myself and to speak. The beings want to learn which touches me. By offering myself this way, I have the opportunity to move, to see other aspects of the bigger garden, to feel the heart of the human being, and eventually even to speak a few words, whispering what they might do to stay on the path that always leads them to the garden. I am shy, but if I listen long enough and feel my body in their body, sensing what the beings need to hear, then I will say what I know. Thank you. So what we're going to do is we're going to field questions. So if you're interested in asking a question, it'll be first in line, first question. For either one of you, uh, in your investigations, what element of, say, uh, sex magic did you discover in any of the cultures? I know that there's, it's more of a Western thing, uh, sex magic, and, and using uh, psychotropics to elevate consciousness or break through your ego, so to speak. Um, I know we have different signifiers in indigenous, indigenous cultures, but sex magic, what do you, anything? Sex magic? <laughs> That's what I, I'll leave that, it's cat's specialty, I can leave it. <laughs> If you're talking literal human sex magic, <laughs> uh, actually what I find in the various places that I've worked is that they say, uh, it's pretty universal, no sex for three days before or three days after using a plant or mushroom medicine. That what we're doing is making ourselves very, very transparent, very open and vulnerable, and that's how you want to be, so that you can get the message, so that you can share between you if you're in ceremony with others, and that if you let in that much of someone else immediately before or after, even a dearly loved one, a partner even, your boundaries are down, and you just need to actually um, stay whole. Otherwise, you're either in danger of taking on too much of the intentional or accidental influence of someone else, or of just going stark raving mad? Well, you know, abstention goes hand in hand with so many rituals. I mean, hunting rituals is typical. And it's the idea, I guess, of not giving away your power. Mm -hmm. And it, it's also interesting to draw the comparison between hunting and the use of these plants. I mean, people like the Huichol explicitly refer to the seeking of the peyote as a hunt, and they call it the tracks of the sacred deer. And, mm -hmm. and I think it touches upon the role of shamanism in all these uh, societies. Most of these societies that use these curious plants are shamanic societies. And, and shamanism was the first world religion because it was, uh, you know, it, in a way, if you think of the origin of religion, it was that moment um, when people tried to come to terms with the inexorable separation between life and death and how people resolve that determine their mystical worldview. And in the early days, hunting societies always had to come to terms with the terrible thing that to live they had to kill the thing they loved most, the animals upon which they depended. And in most 
hunting societies, whether of the rainforest of the Arctic, the hunting in myths kind of emerged as, a, as an expression of the covenant that existed between predator and prey as a way of rationalizing that terrible fact that to live they had to kill their brother or their sister. And I think that metaphor plays itself out in the use of these plants too, where you have a feeling that you know to, to embrace the magic of the other, you must, for whatever reason, abstinence from sex is seen as a precondition, as a moment of purity. Uh, just this summer, I was up on a mountain sacred to the Taltan in British Columbia looking for obsidian, and we found an amazing archaeological deposit. I mean, literally the mother load of obsidian for the entire Pacific Northwest, chunks of it this big. My Taltan friend, who was from the Crow Clan, felt very unsettling because we had actually looked over the mountain with a helicopter. And uh, we found this site, but it just didn't really resonate with him until we returned to it on foot. And he had failed to follow the proper, you know, um, he hadn't been ab abstentious from, from sex, you know. And, but it's that idea of the hunt that's so interesting in the use of these sacred plants. Mm -hmm. Over here. But in the 60s, there was, there was a lot of awakening. And, and I personally was one of the people that was awakened to not servicing the industrial complex or the petrochemical community and, and realizing that money was not the most important thing. All the programming before that led to money being so important, so I had an awakening. My question is, what is either one or both of your experiences being with technological and maybe environmental discoveries being made via the shamanic experience, the mind-altering experience, like it has been uh, maybe addressed that the internet might have come from some sort of fungi experience uh, and as a result there's a vast amount of information available to everybody's fingertips today. What is your experience there with, you know, was a light bulb, was electricity, is photon magic? Uh, uh, where, where are these things being shared and what are your experiences there? I think discovery comes from creativity and imagination and, and you know these plants may be catalytic in certain ways but I think it's very important to not to put too much on a pharmacological moment in a sense. I thought you were getting around to what I think is in a way a more interesting question which is what's it like to live amongst the people who don't have any material possessions and that's something I found very interesting living amongst nomadic societies for example where there's no incentive, of course, to have any material possessions because everything has to be carried on your back. You suddenly realize that the measure of wealth literally, quite literally, is the strength of the social relationships amongst people. And it makes for a profoundly different sense of community. And it's not a kind of a, a loose concept. I mean, for nomadic peoples, if they do not get along and a cluster of perhaps eight or ten people fracture, it means by definition they'll have a 50% less chance of securing the food for the table. So I think it's interesting how culture plays itself out through adaptation and makes for profoundly different human beings. So for example, in nomadic society, sharing becomes an involuntary reflex because you never know who's going to be the next person to secure the food. And I remember, you know, we, we walk past a homeless person in the streets and we think it's an inevitable, perhaps tragic aspect of our economic system. But for many people, a poor man is believed to shame us all. And I've been with Penan and Gabra people in the streets of Europe or in North America walking past a homeless person, and they just can't believe it. It just seems bizarre to them that a place so wealthy could tolerate such iniquities. So 
I think it's very important to keep focus on the fact that the use of these plants is rooted in culture and it's rooted in a more general desire to change consciousness, which people like Andy have written so eloquently about. So I don't think we should put too much on the shoulders of these sacred plants and focus more on the wonder of human adaptation to a remarkable planet. And I would uh, like to add that there is also the interface of uh, the tradition of shamanism in all cultures. I agree, sometimes some of us have that aha experience, which is so valuable when we've taken one of these agents of, of uh, change and awakening, but we also have them without those. But traditionally, they're used in the context of ritual or of shamanic invocation for understanding, for seeing the great network of connections, for figuring out better, truer ways to be humans in the world together. And so that shamanic interface, I remember once on uh, LSD, I understood that it was after many years of various things that I understood that there was something just right over our heads, just almost out of reach, but not quite, right over our heads, that in that state I could see how that was where the... Celtic priests and priestesses had reached for a certain kind of presence. That is where the African people reached into their acting out their myths. It was this place of, that's very near us all the time that we can kind of pull onto us like a cloak of enacting you know, the magical realm and having it be present for a little while. And sometimes these plants help that happen, but it can happen without them too. There are ways of learning to be in that interface. Um, at a time when a larger segment of the U.S. population is now starting to ask questions about U.S. foreign policy and U.S. intervention overseas and why other folks might be mad at us, I'm wondering, um, Wade, if you could talk a little bit about, a little bit more in depth about the interconnection um, with indigenous societies in Colombia and the cocoa leaf and then about Plan Colombia and the impacts of Plan Colombia on indigenous ways of life there? Well, one thing we certainly discovered on September 11th was that for 25 years we've been fighting the wrong war. You know, $20 billion spent on the war on drugs, and it turns out the FBI has 15,000 agents and 25 of them can speak Arabic. You know, obviously I believe the war on drugs is one of the greatest examples of what Barbara Tuckman described as folly, which is when a nation, though in full possession of the facts, nevertheless persists in its own policies, which are against its own best interests. I mean, to say that we've destroyed a country would be an understatement. I don't think there's any point for me to sort of get on a tirade about the war on drugs, because I'm sure it's very much preaching to the converted here. There is one point I, I would like to argue, which is that the one statistic that is constantly left out it's the fact that by all accounts, something on the order of 90 or 95 million Americans have tried, quote unquote, illegal drugs. Roughly 5 million people regularly consume marijuana. Maybe 500,000 people regularly defined as once more a week take some psychoactive substance. But what the, the real statistic is that roughly 90 million Americans have been exposed to these substances, had them sweep over their imagination, drawn for the most part something good from them, and moved on with their lives. And that, in fact, in an anthropological sense, is exactly what happens when drugs come into a culture for the first time. I used to always say that the French Revolution was caused by caffeine. And it sounds silly until you remember that until the 17th century, 
you could not drink the water in any European city if you didn't want to get cholera or some other pathogen. Uh, and so all beverages were fermented. So the whole continent was mildly besotted in alcohol the whole time. And suddenly, within a 30 or 40 year period, three central nervous system stimulants came in, tea from China, chocolate from Guatemala, uh, coffee from Brazil, and well, ultimately before that, of course, from Abyssinia. And because these were precious commodities that had to be made with boiled water, that took care of the cholera and the various pathogens. And because they were precious commodities, they were dispensed in, in houses known as coffee houses or chocolate houses, which became centers of intrigue. And instead of having your brow and your beer, you were wired on caffeine and you couldn't shut up. And suddenly you notice that Versailles was a little bit bigger than your place. And I, I had this idea and I got this call. I was actually in Singapore and I got a call in the middle of the night from a friend of mine who was in Paris and he said, Wade, you won't believe it. I'm sitting in the cafe, not only where Voltaire wrote, but from where I've now discovered that the first seeds of the mob that stormed the Bastille marched out after having a coffee. And uh, I felt vindicated. Uh, but I mean, the, the point is that if you legalize drugs tomorrow, you'd be astonished to find that consumption would barely increase, in my opinion. Uh, I've never met anyone in my life whose decision to use or not use illicit substance has ever had anything to do with their legal status. Uh, and, and in contrast to that, of course, are the known consequences of, of criminalization. Everything from uh, corrupt judiciary uh, to seizure laws that allow them to take my house in Washington, D.C. if a house guest has an illicit substance. Obviously, the creation of a prison building industry with an enormous lobby. And of course, the worst thing of all is the corruption of the inner city in this country, but more importantly, in a sense, the complete destruction of one of the oldest democracies in South America, uh, Colombia, which may not be a perfect democracy, but is a country that certainly does not deserve the consequences of our war on drugs, uh, which is shameful what we've done to it. And there was some other aspect to that question I wanted to address, but I can't remember what it was. Oh, I, I wanted to talk more. Uh, you, you mentioned September 11th, and, and I think there's, you know, when, there's one thing I wanted to say about really what the clash of cultures, of course, what it, how it's affected the indigenous people in South, in South America in general, is that the price of coca leaves used for 4,000 years with no evidence of toxicity, let alone addiction, the price of those leaves has now gone up dramatically, so in many cases they're not available for ritual use. And in other cases, for, for example, in the Northwest Amazon and in areas controlled by the cartel, in many cases, indigenous peoples of the Tucano of Barasana have been absorbed into a system of debt peonage as labor for the processing of the coca paste in ways that are extremely detrimental to those people. But in terms of, it's an, it, there's an important point to make about what's going on in September 11th since you gave me an opening, and that is, you know, when, obviously when President Bush asked why do they hate us, he thought the answer was they hate us because we're pluralistic, we have an independent judiciary, we have a free press, and so on. And the problem is, of course, we do have those things, and they're wonderful, but they, of course, are not the face of America that most people in the world see. And what they indeed see is our, our tendency to support regimes that tend to be antithetical to those values. But even more important, the larger critique is what we're really seeing in this situation is a clash of modernity. You know, the triumph of secular materialism is a conceit of modernity. And we have this kind of illusion in all of our development issues and all of our 
notions of the modern world, that there's a trajectory of progress, and that even if we are sympathetic with these indigenous societies, they're sort of quaint and colorful, but on the margins of history as the real world moves inexorably forward. Well, the one lesson of anthropology is that there is no trajectory of progress, and in fact, when you look at the circumstances of indigenous peoples throughout the world, half of humanity, of which is disappearing before our eyes, half of humanity's legacy, uh, in every case, these are not cultures faded to fade away. These are cultures that are dynamic and vibrant and alive that have been driven out of existence by external forces beyond their capacity to come to terms with. And what the face of modernity is in the world is really a set of initiatives that at the very best draw people from their past, propel them into an uncertain future, and at the very best secure them a, a place in the lowest rung of an economic ladder that goes nowhere. And so we induce through development ideas uh, and through the power of our, of our influence nomads off the lands in, in, in Kenya and they find themselves living in the slums of Nairobi where the unemployment rate is 60% for those with a high school education or we find ourselves, you know, through egregious violations of the homeland of the Penan forcing them into settlements or the cities like Lima, Peru that had maybe 400,000 people in 1940 now is home to 9 million people and whether it's the refugee camps of uh, the Afghan frontier, or whether it's Lima or the barrios of Lima, all these places become breeding grounds for resentment. And whenever people are pressured in this kind of way, strange things happen. And in anthropology, we call those millenarian cults. The Rastafarians are a perfect example. I mean, the Rastafarianism came out of a world of economic impossibilities of a people for whom there was no way to go up, so down looked as good as up and sideways looked the same as up, and you add to that copious amounts of ganja, and you've got a fantasy of Haile Selassie and the Lion of Judah. We also had that with the Sioux, the ghost dance, when the buffalo had been swept from the prairie and the people had been reduced to the reservations. You have this fantasy that that somehow, you know, if we just pray in the proper way, the whites will be swept away, the buffalo will come back, and even the bullets of the cavalry won't pierce our ghost dance shirts. Or you see it in the cargo cults of, of South Pacific after World War II, or the Mau Mau Rebellion, or the Boxer Rebellion, or these incredible things. And that's what we've, in fact, created with this fanatical, it's not even Islamic, this fanatical fantasy for a, an era of... Arabic culture that never existed but has to be presumed to exist to kind of rationalize this insane place that these people find themselves in. So that's really why they hate us. I don't, I don't know what... what, what I was late, but when I arrived, you were, I believe, speaking about Ibogaine or Ibogan. Am I correct? You mentioned Ibogan. I the African plant. I only mention it in, in that's in one passing. Of the, in well, very much in passing. That's funny because I wanted to ask that question of you at the uh, conference for indigenous building indigenous bridges in Hawaii. So, you know, this war for drugs, I believe that Ibugan can save, uh, can save a lot of lives here in America. Do you have any idea why this government refuses to have this plant uh, propagated here in America? Well, they refuse to have it propagated because it's Schedule 1, which means the top level of illegal, and they're not very reasonable once they've pushed it there. It's pretty hard to get things unscheduled. Don't know if we've ever done that um, on the big ones. But 
they were doing, I don't know if that's still going on, but uh, maybe five, six, seven years ago during doing studies on the, um, the extracted alkaloid ibogaine uh, from the iboga root in this country under the DEA uh, because of its uh, reputation for helping with addiction. Personally, I think that any of these, um, these plants or fungi that cause epiphanies of this sort and self-review can be as helpful with looking at one's addiction and changing one's pattern. But that one has sort of been fixated on as the, the um, you know, addiction ally. And what I understood, actually, um, that was the only time I've ever been contacted by the DEA, was they asked me if I could come up with uh, iboga root for their, um, for their experiments. And I said, but wouldn't I be arrested if I came up with it? And <laughs> they said, well, you would have to come up with it with uh, you know, a 10-foot high chain link fence and a guard with guard dogs around you. And I said, that would, I don't want to live like that, <laughs> you know. It was a really strange connection. So um, I said, you know, Africa is where you should go. And they said, well, the reason we're even asking you is because we've been working with the powder, the alkaloid, and we're not getting the results that um, we thought we would get. And so we just brought several men over from Gabon who were familiar with Iboga root. And they told us we were crazy because we didn't have the whole root bark there, which has many, many things, including the spirit in it. This is someone from the DEA explaining this to me. <laughs> and so someone said we should call you. <laughs> Let me. That, that's, that's the end of that story. I was unable to help them. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll, I'll follow up with one DEA story because I'm sure that everybody loves them. Uh, a very close friend of Andrew Wiles and mine, Tim Plowman, was the world's authority on coca. And I was very fortunate uh, to be sort of his field apprentice for, for some time. And in the wake of this long, amazing investigation that Tim did, a job opening came up at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and he was visiting me in Washington. And amongst the many things that Tim had shown was that this was a very nutritious plant. It had more calcium in it than any, any plant ever studied by the USDA, which made it very useful for a traditional diet that lacked a dairy product. It was even suggested in the early years that it might have had enzymes that enhanced the body's ability to digest carbohydrate at high elevation. Clearly this, this, was, a, this was a benign medicinal plant, the antithesis of the image that it had as a pernicious drug. But at any rate, there was this job opening and Tim was visiting me and he said, I want you to apply for it, but if you take it, I'll kill you. So I go out to Beltsville to the USDA and I go into this office. The first thing I notice is the guy's a drug addict himself. I can't get in for the cigarette smoke. Then I notice the whole walls are covered by psychedelic posters from San Francisco in the 60s, seized hookahs and paraphernalia. And then I'm looking at this guy and I'm thinking, where have I met him before? And I used to have a farm in Medellin just when the cartel was starting. And at that point, a lot of them were just sort of sleazy Colombian hippies. Uh, and this guy literally, if you put this in the book, no one would believe you. He had a big butterfly, it was in the late 70s, big butterfly, open collar with a hairy chest, gold chains, those gold rings, and one of those um, wristwatches with nuggets on it, you know? And, I, and, and I, what he wanted me to do was, after all this elegant research that Timothy had done, he, all he had got from it, and it was research funded by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, 
was that we must be pretty good at getting to those coca fields. So what he wanted me to do is go back to the Wayaga Valley, and by this point, the Wayaga Valley was aflame with the Sendero Luminosa, go into the coca fields, find the biological entities that seem to predate on the leaves, and bring them back alive so they could manipulate them and make them even more predatory and be released as biological controls of coca. And I'm listening to this kind of Dr. Strangelove scenario, and I'm suddenly looking at the I where have I seen this guy before? And I suddenly realized I'd never seen him, but I had met him a thousand times in Medellin, right up the road. He was the cartel. In other words, there was a yin-yang thing happening where it was absolutely clear that the energy in this guy was exactly the same energy that Pablo Escobar had, or Carlos Leder, you know, and that that's why this thing goes on. They love each other. I mean, they don't want this to end. Uh, you know, if the DEA, if it goes legal, DEA's out of work. If it goes legal, they're out of money. So, I mean, none of these people have the slightest interest in winning the war on drugs. And that was my revelation from that job interview. I didn't take the job. Yeah, the lady who asked about ibogaine, um, it is available in Amsterdam. You can buy it in crystal form as well as root. Um, in crystal form, it's about, six, about $250 a gram. Can you, can you compare and contrast uh, a few situations for me? There's a, a patient, a shaman. The shaman gives the patient, patient medicinal medicine um, situation. Two, uh, the shaman gives or takes um, medicine himself or takes plants himself and heals the patient. And number three is where no medicinal plants are involved but psychoactives, which the shaman himself takes and the patient heals, uh, I don't understand. I think it's really important to know, sort of get a sense of what shamanic medicine is all about. You know, obviously in our society, uh, we, we distinguish between the priest and the physician, and the physician treats the body and the priest has, has, has domain over the soul. And obviously in the shamanic traditions, the priest and the shaman become one. And, my sense of it is that there's two very different levels of treatment. On the one hand, you can treat diseases uh, symptomatically, uh, much as we do, only in place of medicinal drugs. They use medicinal herbs, many of which are pharmacologically active. But my experience has been that that's sort of considered somewhat mundane, and certainly, or at least it's within the physical realm of the women who often are treating um, their families with the immediate challenge of dealing with a headache, a stomach ache, an infection, are all the basic things that the afflictions that can, can, can uh, affect a society. And the shaman's notion of healing is very much that disease entities, which can be either biological or they can be metaphysical or they can, you know, misfortune can come from any direction. The, the origin of those sources of malevolence is always seen to be in some kind of metaphysical realm. And so the, the, the real active shamanic healing is the journey with these sacred plants, wherein the shaman, be it man or woman, elevates his or her spirit, uh, invoking some technique of ecstasy to soar away on the wings of trance to get into those distant metaphysical realms. And I've always felt that there's a bit of a, a fantasy about the shaman as being this great kind of repository of herbal medicine. I've always experienced that often it's the women who know more about the herbal medicine and the shaman's sort of busy working with the real challenge, which is the psychotropic plants. I mean, I don't think that's universally true, um, 
but I think that's often true. And the other, the other myth I've always seen is that the idea we have that the shaman's always a benign fatherly or motherly figure, you know, who, you know, and I've never met a shaman who wasn't crazy. I mean, that's their job, as Joseph Campbell said. You know, they're the ones who go into the waters most of us don't even want to know exist. I've always found shaman, in a sense, more marginal to their communities in a very positive sense, marginal, um, because most Indian people just are trying to get by, trying to most people in most societies are. And so there's always been a little edge to the shaman, which is so, so interesting. And of course, that fine line between enlightenment and psychosis is the fact that he has or she has a society willing to welcome him back and in fact recognizes and validates that esoteric knowledge that he or she seeks. And I've had experiences with friends of mine from our culture who, one in particular that I knew very, very well in the Canadian North, and I once visited with Johannes Wilbert at UCLA, who was one of the great shamanic sort of authorities in some sense. He had lived with the Winikino Warao in the Orinoco Delta for 30 years, and many, of, many remarkable scholars had gone through his um, uh, classroom. And I described exactly what this friend of mine did, which did involve quite a, quite a lot of exposure to psychotropic substances, months at a time alone in the wilderness seeking a kind of metaphysical being that he imagined uh, to exist. But I didn't say what culture this was going on in. And when I described all these attributes, Johannes said that's a pure shamanic path. And then when I said what culture it was happening in, Johannes instantly said, that's a recipe for madness. Because of course the lesson was that my friend, who was taking a lot of acid, a lot of mushrooms, a lot, well actually a potpourri, or he used to be a partner of me, it was back, actually we once went through the Alaskan border, and just before going through the border, we were park rangers in British Columbia, and I, we, I asked him if he was clean, and he asked me the same, we said, no problem. Well, we got through after a terrible experience with a border guard and his dogs, and we just slipped through because of the lineup of Winnebago's, and when we checked our backpacks, it turns out we were a walking pharmacopoeia, we had everything. But at any rate, he, he would take these substances, and of course in the end he did go mad. You know, he, he did really, he, he lost it, because there was no cultural matrix to bring it, him back to, bring that vision back to. So I think it's a, a subtle thing. And I would like to um, point out one of my favorite parts of, of at least my cosmology, which is the mystery, because what goes on isn't necessarily grounded in the plant or in the human or in the shaman or in the ritual or in the worldview even you know it's not necessarily cultural there are some things which are just unexplainable and um, there are many illustrations of that and hopefully we each have some illustrations of that but one that I heard a couple of years ago in Mexico that I really love is from a sort of perennial grad student on his never-ending PhD dissertation research, kind of had ended up being in Mexico for some years at that point, but he was working on his dissertation. He was postmodern anthropologist. He was looking at, at uh, shamanism among the Mazatec people, the only other person I have met really studying their approach to all this. They have prayer ceremonies. That's what they are. They heal within those prayer ceremonies. They see the future within them, but they are praying the whole time. And he was totally a-religious and interested in postmodern questions like discourse and power and ways of explaining, you know, how people relate and wield control over each other. 
and had disbelief for all the so-called magical aspects that happened during these ceremonies until one time when he, he was reluctant to take the mushrooms in these ceremonies also, but he had to occasionally in order to keep being credible and doing his field work. So one time he participated in a prayer ceremony with a curandero, a shaman, and his wife and a family, um, that's typical, and a neighbor who had come for some healing and, and to be part of the ceremony and this young anthropologist, they all took a nice dose of many little pears of, some, of one of the psilocybe species, and he was doing the right thing, facing the rough altar with the plants on it against the stone wall, saying, you know, murmuring and saying the prayers and singing along with them when they were singing, and, and uh, observing, you know, making mental notes to write down later on the sort of the movements of, uh, of uh, relationships going on there, like a good anthropologist. And then he noticed, hanging from the upper right-hand corner of the room, the little hut with the stone wall, he noticed a number of pairs of feet hanging down, feet rough with sandals, with gowns, with wingtips. They were the feet, the just knees down, of a whole band of angels up in the corner of the room. And he was really spooked by that, because he knew hallucinations. We all know hallucinations. You can get jaded about hallucinations, you know, those two. And he thought he had it all categorized and covered. He couldn't deal with this category, and they didn't go away. They stayed there, and they stayed there for a long time. Everyone went on praying and crying and saying thank you for this beautiful life. And then finally, when the ceremony wound down, he and the man he didn't know, the neighbor, stepped outside to relieve themselves. And the guy said, did you see all those angels hanging up out in the corner of the room? <laughs> and he was just, OK, well, I have to admit, I don't know what's going on. I've been studying these folks for years, and it just defies my categories. So that, that's the mystery part of it. <laughs> I think we have time for one more question, so over here, that's it. You both just touched on this a little bit, but I was wondering if you could expand on the role of these plants with women in traditional societies. Wade, you had talked about the men in tradition with uh, hunting. Obviously, in most of these societies, women don't go out hunting. Is there anything specifically that women use it for? Do women, are they part of the same ceremonies as the men? I'll say a quick thing on that and then pass to Ken because I'm sure she's got much more to say. I, I think it's important that we, we, we tend to, uh, uh, because of our own obsessions perhaps with the psychotropic plants, put, put more weight to them than even some of the um, indigenous people may do. And of course it changes tremendously from culture to culture. You know, in the Mazatec, of course, the women are the famous curanderas. But in, in the Amazon, most of the curanderos are men. And because they have this very complex and sophisticated um, almost alchemy with the various ingredients of ayahuasca, it's drawn a great deal of attention. But if you actually think about how, for example, and of course it usually is within the sphere of the man's realm, and these societies tend to be quite bifurcated between the male and the female, that falls within the ma male's domain. But you know, anthropologists ignored something which is frankly, in a way, if you think objectively, just as interesting, which is the way the women make food. And it wasn't until a, a well-known anthropologist, Christine Hugh Jones, lived with the Barasana in the 1970s and really seriously paid attention to how the women prepared manioc. And of course, you all know that manioc is this plant that is, is toxic with 
um, cyanogenic glycosides in it. It has to be prepared very carefully. It's, it's um, dug up from the fields. It's, it's rasped and made into a sort of a paste. And then it's in a very elaborate sort of a process. The, the, the water is leached through and then eventually it's put into something called the TPT, which is kind of unusual woven structure that can squeeze it very, very tight to uh, get rid of all the liquid and with it all the toxins. But the actual elaboration of that and all the mythology that goes along with it and all the associations as to what the, between the anaconda and the TPT and, and, the, and the, the whole process and the stories and the songs are virtually as elaborate as the shaman's repertoire vis-a-vis -vis the ayahuasca, yet it's simply the food of the, of the table. So sometimes we emphasize, because of our own interests, as if the ayahuasca preparation and complex is more interesting or more important than something that which we might reflexively dismiss as just, you know, the making of food. But the people themselves don't draw that distinction. And within the realm of the woman, that is considered just as vital an activity as, as deeply imbued with ritual and myth to a certain extent, at least. Um, and yes, I would, uh, I would back that up with uh, that the women are often, um, they have their own technology. Their technology is much more elaborate often as it is with, with manioc. Um, in fact, detoxifying carbohydrates is something that women have been doing for 50,000 years or so. And uh, it's a major, we're really good at it. Uh, but uh, the uh, ayahuasca complex there, I have seen the women not so often be ayahuasqueros, but most male ayahuasqueros are married. They're in couples. I can't even think of one that wasn't. And the wife is the one who gathers the plants or goes with him to gather the leaves at least and who does the brewing. And I've seen that over and over that really the measuring, the handfuls, the tending of the fire, the dawn to, to dusk, very, very careful tending of the fire is often, um, the majority of the time, done by the woman. And the grinding, if the, if the people who use the bark or don't, there are you know, variations on this technology. But then also, um, to carry that a little farther, just I was in Ecuador last year again, and, um, and by the way, Ecuador is also being absorbed into the war on drugs and the Colombian disaster, as well as having all the blood, the oil sucked out of the earth. Ecuador has gone from being a gem to being a really sad place in a lot of ways, at least the northern part toward Colombia. And people are living in very, very stressed situations. They're still doing their, their ceremonies. They're still brewing these plants. And they're still praying. And, um, and they have to listen to the oil wells pumping all night long while they do it. I don't know where that's going. But, uh, but what I saw when I talked to several different uh, couples, healer couples, is that the women don't take the brew when the man is leading a session or healing a sick person who's come because she takes very seriously her role as protector of the ayahuasquero. That she's actually, she's, and I, I've had the men say this to me as well, that they need her. She's more powerful at protecting. She's more astute at reading 
metaphysical, invisible threats, and they need her watching their back so they can be vulnerable to do that work with the patient or to do the ceremony. So she won't take it then. She will move from one doorway to another. She will have the leaves that she sweeps with. She will be watching in the darkness for the barely visible, and she works with that and allows this session to go on. So she's brewed the plants, and then she holds the ceremony. She's the vessel in all these different ways. And then if she wants to have that experience, she'll do it sometime just with her ayahuasquero husband when he's watching out for her. I heard that three times just last year in Ecuador from different, different people, and so that's an insight into the role of women, I think. Okay, I think we have to end it there, but thank you very much for coming. Thank you. Great